Good afternoon. The semester has officially ended at Penn State, so I'm Sean Harper. I am now in transition officially um, to the faculty of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania from Penn State. Um, I'm going to spend just a few moments uh, to be more specific about 14 and a half minutes uh, or less talking with you about a paradigmatic shift in the way that we talk about, think about, and approach policy, practice, and research concerning black male college achievement. Um, and the reason why I am advocating a um, paradigmatic shift here is because most of us have spent the entire day together, and I've come to care about you a lot. And I would like to protect you from the onset of uh, additional depression regarding the statistics and the uh, problematic things that we've heard uh, concerning the social status of African-American men. Um, I certainly recognize that those things are extremely complex and problematic and do not seek to dismiss them, but I'm going to suggest that perhaps we um, kind of balance the conversation a little bit. Um, so here is just a, a, a very, very abbreviated snapshot of um, the kinds of things that we see and hear, um, both in the research literature as well as in the popular press, regarding black male college participation and achievement. I loved the way that you differentiated um, access and opportunity, because a lot of times we talk about access to college, and yeah, uh, black kids and black guys in, in particular may have access to college, but what does that mean when it comes to participation and seizing that opportunity? So, you know, a lot of what we hear is about why there are so few of us, why we do so poorly, um, and, and, and so on. So, you know, a lot of that has been captured, and I would suggest that we now have a sizable body of literature and things from the popular press to um, help us to understand some of the complexities that, that go into the underrepresentation and inadequate performance of black male college students. Um, I like to use this particular illustration because I am a professor of higher education. Um, all of my, all of my work is on, is on college students. So I want to introduce you to 10 black male first year students and for for, for color and for context, let's assume that they all come from his school. And they're all going to uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, just as an example. So there are these 10 guys. They're coming equally prepared, um, you know, with similar backgrounds, similar familial structures, similar SAT and ACT scores, and, and so on. Unfortunately, by the junior year, only three and a piece of one will remain at the institution where he started out. Um, so what, what this really graphically represents is that more than two-thirds of all black men who start college do not graduate within six years, which is the lowest college completion rate by far among both sexes and all racial and ethnic groups in higher education. Now, most of the attention has been placed on what happened to these guys who are in these, these vacant squares. What I'm going to suggest here is that there is something that can be learned from these three guys and the one who's just barely holding on about what enabled them to persist through degree attainment and allowed them to persist through the four, five, or perhaps even the six years. Yeah, it's important to try to figure out what happened to the other six and, and uh, two-thirds, but again, 
something very instructive can come from those who have managed to overcome what we know to be the odds and the barriers and the disparities that we spent all day now, uh, some portions of the day cooler than others, talking about. Um, I want to call to your attention um, the, the insufficient body of knowledge that we now have on black college, uh, black student success in college, and more specifically black male student success. A colleague of mine, uh, at the University of Maryland College Park, Sharon Fries Britt suggested nearly a decade ago, and I am going to argue that her assertions still hold true um, in contemporary times, a decade later, that the disproportionate focus on black underachievement in the literature not only distorts the image of the community of black collegians, it creates, perhaps unintentionally, a lower set of expectations for black student achievement. What Sharon meant by that is that we have this much stuff to tell us why black students do so poorly in higher education, particularly on predominantly white campuses, but we literally have this much to tell us for those who have done well how they've managed to do that. Um, so because of the disproportionate focus in the literature and the conversations, um, you know, we, we, we tend to accept as normative if you will, that black students are not going to be able to successfully navigate these different kinds of places. I would like to acknowledge that most of Sharon's research is in fact based on uh, students in the Meyerhoff uh, Scholars Program at UMBC, which I, which I think is great. Um, here, uh, this was two years ago, um, I, I, I wrote an article and um, I no longer refer to the guys in my project as high achievers. Um, I, I've since changed my language around that because um, philosophically, when you hear that someone is a high achiever, that means that you didn't really expect them to achieve and that they've achieved beyond expectation. And I'm not sure that that's exactly what, what I'm going for here. Um, you know, I, I think that as we work with institutions to shift our thinking about black male college success, that we should expect black male students to succeed because I've noticed that no one rises to low expectations. But anyway, so in this piece uh, two years ago, I, I said that more than two-thirds of all African-American males who begin college never finish. This and a legion of other discouraging facts about this population are the usual headlines. But what about those among the population who beat the odds, make the most of college, and achieve in multiple ways inside and outside of the classroom. Who are they? And more importantly, what can they teach us? So what I'm calling for here, again, is a paradigmatic shift, not only in the study of black male college achievement, but again, in the way that we craft policies and programs um, to increase opportunity and to improve outcomes among, um, among black male students. So again, I'm not suggesting that we do away with studying the undercurrents of disparities and inequities and things that yield problematic outcomes. We need to continue to roll up our sleeves and collectively and collaboratively do that until those disparities are no more. But what I am suggesting is that we have a dual focus and that we um, kind of repackage, if you will, the way that we ask achievement-oriented questions about black male college participation and success. For instance, in the underachievement paradigm, the focus has been almost exclusively on why black male enrollments and matriculation 
are so low in higher education. Another way to ask that question would be, how are black men's college-going aspirations developed among those who do make it into college? Yeah, it's important to know why they aren't there, but I'm probably a little bit more interested. For those of you who are there, how did you get there, and what can we learn about your trajectories that will help inform, again, the policies and practices and where we invest our resources? Some other, uh, a couple other questions. In the underachievement paradigm, the focus is on why black men are so disengaged. Again, in the achievement side of this question, um, same question, just packaged differently. What compels black men to become so actively engaged and to access resources and to seek out help and to take advantage of institutional resources on their campuses? For those who did it, why did they do it? And again, what can be learned about the way in which it was done? Um, in the interest of time, because I'm committed to, uh, to sitting down here in, in eight minutes, uh, sorry, six minutes. So in the interest of time, I'll just sh share maybe two more of these with you. Um, you know, how do black men negotiate access to exclusive information and powerful social networks, kind of bringing a little social capital, if you will, into, into the study, but again, not focusing on why there's so little capital among black male students, but for those who got it, how they get it? so that we can make sure that other brothers get it. Um, and then on the other side over here, how black men negotiate support for achievement from their same race male peers. Because in the literature, it talks about, you know, the whole often disputed acting white hypothesis and how, you know, it's just not cool to be an achiever. Well, for those of you who are achievers and do have good uh, relationships with other brothers, how have you been able to negotiate that? So um, in my work, I'm taking a, a more holistic uh, characterization of uh, college achievement, and I've done this big national study that I'll spend the last couple minutes here talking with you about. Um, and I did a study of black male college students who had earned cumulative GPAs above 3.0 on a 4.0 scale, those who were extremely involved in multiple organizations and activities and held leadership positions on their campuses, those who had earned the trust and admiration of their peers as determined by peer elections to uh, various leadership positions on the campus, those who had cultivated relationships with faculty and staff inside and outside of class, those who had participated in what we call enriching educational experiences like study abroad programs, summer internships, summer research programs, and so on. And lastly, those who had earned numerous awards, scholarships, and honors for their college achievements. Um, I want to introduce you, I can't tell you about them all in the remaining four and a half minutes, but I want to introduce you to one, uh, Edward Smith Lewis, who is a, a native of Oakland, California. Um, after my interview with, with uh, Edward, I went and, and Googled him. I'm kind of addicted to Google. Um, and I, and I, I found this story that was written about Edward four years ago um, by one of the San Francisco news stations. And it talked about how Edward grew up um, in very economically depressed circumstances. Um, his parents were both um, addicted to drugs, and he was once homeless, and um, you know, just this guy who has this really problematic um, upbringing. Well, four years later, Edward, as of next Friday, will be an alumnus of Morehouse College. Um, he's currently a senior there graduating. And as you can see, you know, in the interest of time, I'm not going to tell you everything about this guy, but you see that he has totally transcended 
those odds and obstacles with which he entered the institution and has really made the most of his college experience. So again, I was interested in knowing from Edward, how in the world did you do that? How did you come from where you came from and, you know, like four years later amass this kind of, this kind of profile? Um, I spent time in addition to Edward with 225 others um, in this National Black Male College Achievement Study, so 226 of them. Um, I won't tell you all of the participant demographics, but what I do want to call your attention to here is that this was a very diverse representation of brothers. Um, you'll notice that about 50, uh, 56% of them came from low-income and working-class backgrounds, which I thought was, was really instructive. Um, but what I learned in this study is that not every brother comes from that that kind of socioeconomic background. You know, there's some middle-class brothers and one or two uh, guys who came from wealthy and affluent backgrounds. But the point here is that, um, you know, these brothers in the study, the 226 participants represented um, a, a wide array of, of backgrounds. Um, as I mentioned before, there were 42 institutions in the study, in the, in the national study, across six different institutional types. Um, predominantly white public research universities, and you'll notice that The Ohio State University was one of the uh, institutions at which I came to interview guys who fit that profile. Um, liberal arts colleges, highly selective uh, private research universities, master's comprehensive state schools, and both public and private historically black colleges and universities. Um, in the final two minutes here, I'm going to focus just for a moment on policymaking, um, because I, I, I think that it's important as we think about this paradigmatic shift that I've, that, that I've advocated here to reconceptualize what I call reactive, uh, policy responses to black male college achievement. And in the interest of time, I'm just gonna read very, very quickly, um, this position that I have about policy making. And it is right or wrong, the reality is that most policy efforts especially those aimed at socially disadvantaged groups, are reactive in nature. More problematic is that stakeholders concerned with black male student achievement at all educational levels typically react to deficiencies and in some instances to evidence of educational malpractice. Consequently, policy and resource allocation decisions are made to fix what researchers, parents, lobbyists, and sometimes even the students themselves identify as contributing factors to racialized and gendered achievement gaps in schools and colleges. While it is necessary to continually illuminate the factors contributing to black male underachievement and the inequitable distribution of social justice via education, it is equally important and at this point arguably uh, more instructive to look for insights into what works, the programs, the policies, and the people and the, uh, the enriching educational experiences that allow certain kinds of students to transcend socioeconomic odds. Um, in this one article, I talk about these two guys, these two students at Harvard, uh, Tariq Dixon and Brian Barnhill, who are now both uh, rising seniors at Harvard. These guys grew, grew up very, very, very poor. Now, some of us have these erroneous assumptions that everybody at Harvard probably emerged from socioeconomic privilege. That was not the case for Tariq and Brian. So what I say in this one, in this one article is that much can be learned from these two guys 
insights into their triumphant educational journeys could be instructive to policymakers who endeavor to improve black male participation and achievement in higher education. And it is exactly 15 and a half minutes, so I'm done. Good afternoon. I'm Keith, thank you. I'm Keith Harmon, Assistant Director of the Meyerhoff Scholarship Program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, and I'm here this afternoon to share with you a presentation entitled Pit Stops Without Penalties, um, and I'll get into the, the, the title of that a little bit later. So just a little information about our institution. Um, we are not the University of Maryland College Park, which is about 30 minutes down the road, and we have a person from a colleague from College Park in the system here earlier this morning. Um, UMBC, we're fairly young. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary this fall. Um, to be honest, we probably were began for people from Baltimore who didn't want to go to College Park, be associated with the D.C. urban crowd. Um, it was very much a white institution. Um, many folks who were there early on and were people of color will tell very um, detailed stories about how it was not a very welcoming place for minorities, um, and that has changed. And right now we're at about 11,000 students, um, 9,000 undergrad, 39% uh, minority. Our president likes to say it looks like the, the uh, United Nations when you walk through. It is a very diverse place, lots of people from all over the world. Uh, information there about the freshman SAT. We're very strong in the STEM fields, and that's really where our focus is, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So across all of the educational levels, undergraduate, masters, and doctoral students, 41% of the students are in the sciences. What are we known for? Not many people know about us. Um, we're known for producing, along with Stony Brook and a couple of other, in other institutions, the largest number of undergraduate um, black undergraduates who obtain a biochemistry degree. Um, our president likes to say that we're known for being national chess champions. Um, most people know us because of the Meyerhoff Scholarship Program. Um, the program was founded by then provost, now president, Dr. Freeman Rabowski, and Jane and Robert Meyerhoff, a couple of Baltimore philanthropists. Mr. Meyerhoff was an MIT-trained engineer and had always been interested in issues um, especially affecting African-American males, and was very uh, upset about the number of African-American males in engineering. I'm told that Ms. Dr. Rabowski met the Meyerhoffs at a social function. Um, they met up. They talked about their interests. Mr. Meyerhoff told him about his um, concern for black males in engineering, and Dr. Rabowski told him that he had always wanted to start a program of full support. He said, at a white institution where he was at UMBC, he said, but something modeled on like what I experienced at Hampton University, where, you know, at that time when people, when you did something wrong, somebody called you to the carpet. They did it lovingly, they corrected you, they set you on the right path. Um, he said, and also when you did something right, you were praised. And we all felt that we were in this together. And so Mr. Meyerhoff liked the idea. I'm told also that he walked away from the social event that night with a check for half a million dollars. 
So I guess it was a successful story. Um, the program began in 1989. We uh, admitted a class of 19 African-American males. That was and still is Mr. Meyerhoff's focus. He will call and say how the African-American males are doing. That's his focus. 1991, the program was open to African-American females, to include African-American females. And in 1995, due to a court case with the University of Maryland College Park, um, the program was open to all high-achieving students uh, due to a federal circuit court ruling that we cannot have race-based scholarships in Maryland. So this is the verbiage we use now for our eligibility, that the program is open to all high-achieving students who have an interest in pursuing doctoral study in the sciences or engineering. And this is a caveat that we really, truly still stick to and who are interested in the advancement of minorities in the sciences and related fields. Uh, in terms of our application process, our students are nominated by high school guidance counselors. Um, we will get about 2,500 to 3,000 nominations, which will um, sometimes, well, actually, I think I have those stats on the very next slide, I do, so I don't have to do that. So we'll get about 2,500 to 3,000 um, nominations. Not all the students will complete that application that we mail out. So here's some uh, information on this year's class. We got about 388 completed. Um, we interview the students sort of on the, the scale of what happens for graduate school interviews. Um, they come to the campus on a Friday. They spend a lot of time with us because we make it very clear that we are not a scholarship. We are a program. And if you come to us looking for money, at the end of four years, you're going to be very unhappy. Um, and I'll give you a little information about that later. Um, we spend a lot of time with them. They meet with Dr. Rabowski. They meet with our current students, their social activities. The next morning, they wake up. They're tested uh, for placement tests. Um, they're interviewed by a team of a faculty uh, researcher, a current Meyerhoff student, and a UMBC administrator. Um, and then we spend more time speaking with the parents. And this year we yielded a class of 48 scholars, and there's some more information in terms of the gender breakdown, distribution of majors, and ethnicity. Um, also here I pulled this out for you. In terms of our black male data, we right now we have 61 black males enrolled in the program with a CUME GPA of 344. There's some SAT information and also uh, breakdown again across the five cohorts that we currently have. Have that information. Um, our program goal is for students to obtain a PhD in research science. When they come to us as freshmen, when they apply, that's made very clear. Um, that is the goal of the program to produce research scientists. Um, so our students come very focused uh, with uh, with a with a very focused goal in mind in terms of completing their undergraduate studies. Their first experience with us as a Meyerhoff Scholar is the Summer Bridge Program, and this program has been in existence um, since uh, the program began. And again, you know, it was done with the males. And just want to share with you a little bit of information, what we call sort of the method to the madness, because I think really the program, the Summer Bridge Program for us is really a key component in producing a Meyerhoff Scholar. We feel that very much so that this is probably the key factor in producing a student that will be successful in their four years of college. When they come to us for Summer Bridge, it's a six-week residential program. They're very surprised. They will not go home for six weeks. We have them for six weeks. They're on site. They're taking seven credits of college courses. Um, they are self-contained for the six weeks. They're taking, um, I, they all take Africana Studies, and they also take 
um, pre-calculus or theoretical calculus. For those, we want everyone to be calc ready in the fall. So for those who are not quite calc ready, they'll take pre-calc. And for those who are, we sort of um, challenge them and take them out of the plug and chug calculus and give them theoretical calculus. Um, the, the, the goal of Summer Bridge is to really put the student in a situation which they have probably never been. We want to recreate that freshman experience, but we want to turn it up times 10. They are literally up and about from 6 a.m. probably till about 12 midnight doing activities, studying, all sorts of things, which we'll go over a little bit later. Um, and here is why we call this presentation um, pit stops without penalties, because we have designed this six-week experience for them so that they can, at this point, make the mistakes that many freshmen make in the fall of their freshman year, or actually throughout their freshman and sophomore year. So in a, in a self-contained environment, we can sort of handle the mistakes, and they can be ready for college in the fall with having some leeway there. We know that a lot of our students who um, have done very well, and we actually have a, I guess in a sense, we, we realize this in a population of students. A lot of our students who've done very well have led very permissive lives. Um, these are students who were not discipline problems. They did fairly well in school. They participated in a lot of activities. And in many public school settings, and in many private school settings, these students have not been challenged because they did not present those problems. And so we want to challenge them here. Um, also, we know we, we have something sort of we call the Baltimore County black male syndrome. And, and that's really what I just described, that we know that a lot of black males in Baltimore County schools um, are good students, uh, have not been challenged. They speak well. Um, they are not discipline problems. But when they come to us, we know that these students have not been challenged. And that's what we want to do in this bridge experience. Again, the whole experience and, and the program is really focused on having very high expectations for our students, and in a very holistic sense. Again, we've covered this. That, um, this is the goal of our program, again, to, to produce minority PhDs. We know from the literature some of the factors that will impede um, minority student success in college. And so these are many of the things that we design um, to uh, address in the bridge program. So, I wanted to share with you today sort of what we call four program pillars, um, four ideals that we sort of address in the program. Again, the centerpiece being uh, high expectations. So when our students are coming to college at UMBC, we know that during the bridge program we want to expose them to the college environment. Um, we really want to make sure that the study skills are there and they develop an academic plan. We, we have one saying, begin with the end in mind. They're coming with a very high goal, so we want to get them to know, we want them to know, um, what does it really take to be successful? Um, we want them to really think about their past habits. We know that many of them will tell us, I have a 4.0 and I studied on the bus for 15 minutes before I came to school. And they have not been challenged. And again, um, we really want them to become aware of their plan, that this is a goal begin with the end in mind. So many of our students right from the very beginning are mapping out their college curriculum uh, for the next four years. Again, we're interested in producing research scientists. So a lot of what we do, we're in a great area. There's NIH, there's Hopkins, there's UMB, there's NASA, there's a CIA. So we're taking our students 
out on site visits to laboratory tours. They're meeting scientists. They're seeing people in the field. So they're getting the affirmation that there are those who have done this and I can do this too. Um, professional development is a session that I actually do with the students in the summer. Um, and one of the questions I ask on the first day of the bridge program is, when do you begin the application process for graduate school? And a common answer is the fall of my junior year. And we tell them, no, you started that process the day you came to UMBC. It starts now. So the freshman year and in the bridge program, we're working on a personal statement. We're working on a resume. We're identifying research interests. We're talking about the graduate school application process. What are the tests that you need to take? How much do these things cost? The amount of money that it takes to apply to an MD-PhD program or a PhD program. Um, I was speaking with some of our seniors just this year. Um, they're spending anywhere between four to $5,000 in applying for some of these programs. So you don't want people to get there in the junior year and not be financially prepared to go forward with their dreams. Peer relationships are very important. Um, we have counselors who really run the Summer Bridge program, and we think that's very important. Um, one, we always tell students that they need to leave the program better than they found it. And and those who are selected to be counselors are our best students academically, in terms of involvement within the program and within UMBC. So we really want them to pass on that ownership. We want the freshman students to witness that. And so that's very important. And um, we also have alumni come back. And also you'll see um, within team building, there's a lot of exercises and things that we do for uh, group dynamic. We tell students when they come to interview that we practice intrusive advising. Again, I said if you're just coming for a scholarship, you're going to be pretty unhappy because we spend a lot of time with our students. If they want to come to college and they don't want that experience of someone really closely mentoring and monitoring what they're doing, then the Meyerhoff program is not really for them. Again, we let them and we provide a lot of opportunities so they interact with professors. Um, they really don't have an, a, truth, a good idea of what the college professor is about. So we, we really try and get professors to come in and sort of demystify that notion that this is someone very you know, distant that I can't talk to, that I can't develop a relationship, which is the most detrimental thing you can do if you want to go on to graduate school because you need those relationships and you need that knowledge. Okay, let's just go forward. Um, ownership and accountability, again, uh, interdependence, I think, is very important. Here's a photo of a community service activity. And, and we do this in a lot of ways, but one thing I did want to share about the interdependence. These students have a lot of times come through with the mentality that I'm focused on getting my A and I'm focused on my success. And we really try and break down that barrier. And one way that we do it is with the pre-calculus class, the professor practices group grading. The lowest grade received on an exam is the grade everyone in the class gets. So all of a sudden, if I'm getting an A, well, I'll reverse this. If Sean is getting an A and I'm getting an F, all of a sudden, my success becomes very important to Sean. And that really changes the paradigm of their thinking. They've been very individualized in their thinking, and we really want them to get this idea that if one of you fail, all of you fail. And it really carries through um, through their tenure at UMBC. At the end of the bridge program, this is the characteristics we want to see in a student. And we believe a student with these characteristics are going to be successful in STEM and can persist in a rigorous PhD program. Um, and I'll just 
go on here and just give you this information to date. In our program, we've had 198 black males, and here is where they are at this point in time. And I think, um, again, 48 in PhD programs, 16 in combined MD, PhD programs, 60 in masters, 29 gone on to medical school, and a small other number's gone on here. Um, in the words, someone asked Dr. Rabowski once about this population of 35 who did not seek uh, graduate study and being a true college president, he says, I hope they have good jobs and they can become contributing alumni. <laughs> so we, we don't see that as a failure. They, they obtained a degree, they have a knowledge, they are prepared, and they're, they're being a contribution to society. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> My name is Jason Reese. I'm a senior researcher at Kerwin, as I was uh, warmly introduced by Dr. Jeffries earlier. Uh, today, Dennis and I have a two-part presentation. I'm going to start out talking about really the theory that informs much of our opportunity research. And Dennis is going to focus on some specific research we've done looking at these dynamics of regional opportunities and African-American males. Well, remember the old real estate saying, location, location, location. Really, that's one of the fundamental, uh, I guess, theories behind this body of work. You know, where you live today and many of our metropolitan regions really matters more than what you live in. Where you live determines the quality of schools that your kids are going to go to. Uh, it influences your exposure to health risks, your access to health care, the type of employment opportunities that are nearby, uh, your risk from crime. The list could go on and on. For people living in high-poverty neighborhoods, you know, all of these factors really work together to, uh, or at least they hold the potential really to inhibit life outcomes. So where you live really determines access to many of the essential opportunity structures needed to thrive in our society. You know, just a few examples. You know, are you living in a community with sustainable jobs? Is there a, a growing job base? Are they good jobs with living wages? Do they offer health insurance? Speaking of health, are there doctors in your community? Primary care physicians? Are there clinics? Are there high-quality hospitals? Are there health risks that you're exposed to that people living on the other side of town are not exposed to? Education, are your kids going to a high-performing school or a low-performing school? Well, unfortunately, when we look at our metropolitan areas, you know, these opportunities are not equally distributed. You know, they tend to cluster. They're cumulative, and they tend to support each other. You know, the same community that struggles with you know, a declining job base is also going to be the same community with failing schools. It's often going to be the same community with higher rates of crime. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Now, Cheryl Cashin describes this as winner and loser communities. 
we refer to it as high and low opportunity communities. And so your location within this web of opportunity you know, plays a decisive role in your life potential. Now we're not saying the individual characteristics don't matter. As the earlier presentations noted, people do transcend these barriers and they succeed. But we are saying that this takes a tremendous amount of effort and that they face a number of obstacles along the way that other people and other communities do not have to face. Now, overlaid on top of this you know, geography of opportunity, a lot of the racial segregation that still um, can be found pretty much in every metropolitan region in the United States. And now, contemporary racial segregation is still fueled by a lot of the exclusionary housing policies that are found everywhere in the country. Um, there's still rampant discrimination in the housing market with realtors. Um, we look at our federal housing policies and the concentration of much of our subsidized housing. So you start to look into some of these dynamics and you really start to understand why we still have such prominent rates of racial segregation in most of our communities. Well, and Dennis's work will really illustrate this later, this racial segregation almost always correlates with the segregation in terms of opportunities in our region. Racially segregated neighborhoods are almost always the lowest opportunity neighborhoods in our communities or in our metropolitan areas. And you can see, you know, this kind of list of impacts from this opportunity segregation or influence of place is well documented with decades of literature and research, everything looking at uh, the results from housing mobility programs where people were able to move to uh, better communities to, you know, social science literature such as, you know, the whole body of work on spatial mismatch and access to jobs and how that plays a role into your employment outcomes. And it should be noted, too, that for people living in these neighborhoods, you're looking at impacts along your entire lifespan. So as a child, you're going to a school that's underperforming. As a youth, you're more likely to be victimized by crime or be harassed by police. As a young adult, you're struggling to find employment because of the poor employment base in the community. And, you know, maybe later on in life, you know, the health risks that you've been associated to, um, or excuse me, you've been exposed to, the lack of health care in your community will actually shear off years of your life. Now, you know, we're talking about, you know, data and research literature, but intuitively we know this. We can see communities and really tell if it's an area of high or low opportunity. Now, this is in the same metropolitan region on the East Coast, and, you know, look at these two communities. Which of these communities is an area of high economic opportunity? Where are you going to find, where, where are you better off looking for employment in this metropolitan area? Community on the left or community on the right? Which has a better tax base? Which of these schools would you want your kids to go to? Which school do you think would be more likely to produce successful educational outcomes? Which of these environments would be safer for children to thrive in? Now, if we can visually see this, that means also with data, we can also quantify it. And Dennis's work will illustrate and speak to how that's done. And if we can quantify it, we can map it, and we can look at it spatially, and we can also see who 
doesn't have access to the higher opportunity areas in our region, and who does? Well, as I close out my comments, I do want to end on really a high note. Now, Dennis will go into a lot of our findings, and there are some very dramatic and disturbing disparities that we'll see in the study that we just did. But there are a number of policies out there which have worked throughout the country to kind of upset these dynamics of opportunity isolation. And I'm just going to go over a few of these. Uh, you know, one of probably the most exciting parts of my job here is you know, scanning the country, looking for policies that interact within this framework and can disrupt this problem. Now, this body of work that we've created looking at these policy interventions uh, has led us to develop a model we call the Communities of Opportunity Model. It's kind of a community development model. And the premise really is that we're looking for policies and actions that affirmatively connect people to opportunity. And you know, the central premise here is you know, really advocating for fair investment in all people in the region, in all of our neighborhoods, with a real focus on people, investing in individuals, expanding their access to opportunity in other parts of the region, and investing back into their communities. And we hope this produces real, profound, transformative change. And just as I close up, think about you know, three particular strategies in terms of policy solutions to do this. Well, one is we invest back into our people, build human capital through improved wealth building, educational achievement, working on social and political empowerment in many of these distressed communities. Well, how do you do this? Well, promoting and protecting homeownership, helping people build wealth, chasing away the predatory lenders that are plaguing a lot of these neighborhoods, helping low-income families access the earned income tax credit, leadership training, which was discussed earlier today, job training, asset building, providing stable and supportive housing, we also have to think about investing back into these neighborhoods in an equitable way that benefits the residents of those neighborhoods. Supporting neighborhood development initiatives, hopefully with community benefit agreements that actually guarantee benefits will be accrued to those living there, attract jobs of living wages, demand high quality local services, uh, expand local educational opportunities, so some examples of how to do this. Well, you know, supporting minority and small businesses in these communities, spurring investments in housing and infrastructure, redirecting public spending away from the suburbs back into many of these urban areas, addressing you know, things like vacant properties, things that really act as impediments to opportunity in these neighborhoods. And finally, focus on linkages. You know, we have to think about encouraging better links among people and places and fostering mobility through high-quality, well-funded public transportation that connects people to areas of opportunity and to economic opportunity in particular. And most important, we have to think about how we do affordable housing in our metropolitan areas. And we need to think about connecting affordable housing to areas of opportunity on a regional basis. Well, you know, how do we do this? Well, we dismantle a lot of the exclusionary housing policies that reinforce segregation. 
we look at our public housing policies and subsidized housing policies and ask why the federal government is using our tax dollars to segregate and place people in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. We look at model programs like in Minneapolis where they're using vouchers to allow children to attend public schools in suburban areas. And those students have met with success. In particular, I'll pull out one policy that um, we've been involved with, and this is in the Baltimore region, um, where we propose that affordable housing be located in specific high-opportunity areas in the Baltimore region. And the goal of this is to help about 7,000 public housing residents in Baltimore's public housing who desperately want to leave Baltimore, the city of Baltimore and access opportunities in the suburbs, particularly for their children. And this has been proposed as part of, as part of a uh, fair housing case currently in federal court. So Dennis will be coming up soon to present some of the results of our research looking at African-American males. But you know, don't just think of those disparities as you know, more depressing statistics. Think of it as something to you know, really encourage you to fight for a lot of these policies that we know work. They've worked in different parts of the country. We know they can be successful, but we just need political will to do it. And without, you know, the only way to get political will is public pressure. So if I could close out, have Dennis come up. I suppose at this time it's probably a little more apropos to say good evening than uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'll thank Ming for not only making me go last, but have numbers. <laughs> uh, so if anyone would like to barricade the door, I'd appreciate it. Uh, so I'd like to start by uh, talking a bit about uh, modeling opportunity. So what we did for seven regions was model opportunity using snapshot and dynamic data from federal and regional sources. These indicators provided a reasonable means to consider questions such as how particular regions fared economically post 9-11, and also snapshot measures of things like crime risk, home values, and educational attainment. This analysis, as I stated earlier, was conducted for seven major metropolitan regions that are home to the largest African-American populations in the United States. Now, this is our first region, and uh, it's the Atlanta region, and I just want to briefly describe what the colors are trying to communicate to you. Uh, <clears throat> the areas with the lightest shade of brown are the areas of low, op very low to low opportunity, and it gets moderate. As it gets darker, it gets, uh, what we're trying to, to infer is that these areas have higher opportunity at the regional level. So in Atlanta, we explored the proximity to opportunity question for African Americans. Uh, what we found was much of the African American male population is clustered in very low to low opportunity areas of the south and east evidenced here. Um, so each dot is a, this is effectively called a dot density map. And what you're seeing is the smaller the dot, the less uh, African-American males they are in this particular area in, within the region. And for our purposes, we'll call these bounded areas neighborhoods. Uh, so just to put some context around this, in, the, in Atlanta, the total population living in low opportunity areas uh, was 31%. For African-American males, that figure was 55%. Uh, and again, we took uh, this, uh, 
very similar data set uh, for all seven of the regions, and this is the Washington region. Same concept, the lighter the area, the lower the opportunity. Uh, <clears throat> and a similar pattern also emerged in Washington. In the, in the Washington region, you'll find that the total population living in uh, low opportunity areas was 33%. For African American males, it, that, that figure was 65%. And um, shifting over to Los Angeles, uh, what we found was that this clustering, this clustering trend was recurrent in all the regions that we studied. So I'll probably speed through this a little bit. Uh, so for the example in the Los Angeles region, the proportion of residents residing in low opportunity areas, regardless of race, was 39%. Uh, for African American males, 62%. Uh, and then we'll shift over to my home region, uh, New York, uh, where this, <coughs> where you'll find of all the of all the people living in New York, 40% live in very low to low opportunity areas. For African American males, it's 68%. Uh, and now in the South, in the Houston region, uh, the total proportion of residents living in low opportunity areas uh, is 35%, and for African American males, it's 57%, which actually happened to be the second lowest uh, compared to Atlanta, which was uh, 55%, as I mentioned earlier. I saved these last two regions because they present the most, uh, I guess, clustered trends. So. In the Chicago region, the proportion of residents living in low opportunity areas is 31%. For African American males, that's, it's 76%, which happened to be two and a half times the regional average. Uh, and then lastly, we close. The last map we'll look at is the map of Detroit. And uh, in Detroit, the proportion of all residents living in low opportunity areas was relatively normal uh, in the sense that it, it mirrored most of, in fact, all the other regions, somewhere bound to between 31 and 38 percent. However, for African Americans, this figure was substantially higher. In fact, it was 91 percent of all African American males live in very low to low opportunity areas. And this was by far the, the highest among all the regions. So. As a study group for all, so I guess for all seven of the regions, what we found was two out of three African-American males uh, were found in low opportunity areas compared to uh, about 20% for white males. Um, and we wanted to give a bit of a graphical illustration of this. So what you see here are one through five categories, and what that represents is exactly what the maps talked about, the idea that the one was a very low opportunity area and five is a very high opportunity area. So what the graph is essentially saying is that <coughs> African-American males have substantially higher probabilities of being in extremely low opportunity areas compared to all white male youth age 0 to 14. And obviously the exact opposite is true uh, for category 5, where you see a multiple I can't calculate in my head for um, very high opportunity areas. So we. And, and I guess in effect, and what I, what I want to talk about now is kind of to shift a bit. Uh, I think in a lot of ways when we describe regions, we tend to describe them as closed systems. And in so doing, what we're saying is that there is only a fixed pool of assets for which everyone has to basically fight over in this bloody red ocean. And what we'll find is in terms of policy, that's not necessarily the case. So just to recap, the data tells us across regions, those in low opportunity areas are uh, roughly around one-third of, of everyone in those seven regions was in the low opportunity area. And on average, for African-American males, that was two-thirds. Uh, 
So this motivated us to ask the question, what if opportunity for African-American males uh, were not constrained by spatial barriers to opportunity like we saw? So in asking that question, we had to go through some particularly interesting uh, statistical changes uh, or, or transformations to the data. But what's most important about that is that the data suggests that the racial distribution of opportunity is interdependent. So the fact that one neighborhood has low is classified as low opportunity uh, substantially affects the neighborhoods around it in terms of how they go in terms of their classification for opportunity. Um, but what you'll notice in, in, when I say this is that, for those familiar with the Columbus region, um, there is a city called Bexley. And Bexley is largely buffered around a, a predominantly middle, low, low, middle to lower income African American population. And Bexley itself is relatively wealthy um, when you look at it at the regional level. So the curiosity comes about in how has a neighborhood that has been largely surrounded by what the mapping would tell us is a low opportunity area, how has it been able to, in a sense, resist that? Um, and I think that that goes a lot into the idea of opportunity being a bundle of assets. Um, but close to that question, close to that analysis, when we talk about opportunity, opportunity is also this idea of proximity and access. So opportunity is like the space, you know, where your house is, but it's also the ability to find employment in other parts of the region. And, that, and that's an access question, and the mapping won't necessarily tell us that. Um, so I want to kind of, I want to close here and say that, you know, what about the future? Uh, earlier we defined opportunity as this bundle of assets and, and expectations about the future. Um, so if we were to follow the map, and if anyone can, if everyone can kind of remember, uh, the map kind of showed opportunity flowing away from the city. And, it, you know, it, it's largely, in, typically outside of the cities, it's largely a, a, a white, uh, non-white, uh, non well, rather, the other way around. In, in, the core, in the core cities, it's a non-white population. In the suburbs, it's largely a white population. So it stands to reason that if you want opportunity, you should run out to the suburbs and get it. Um, and I guess that, that would be rational, but would it be correct? Uh, what we're finding is, and, and what I think that in a lot of ways markets are signaling, is opportunity is always moving, and it's not in a closed system. And I think the increase in suburban flight and gentrification support that position. Uh, <coughs> and as, as we begin to think about regions, we should also be tacitly aware of, of, the global, of, of global interconnectedness. So as global economic dynamics create higher integration, the framing of opportunity becomes increasingly more influenced by uncertainty. So we see this in regions all across the Rust Belt. Decision makers' task now is not necessarily to set the path, but to provide strategic options for African-American males in relation to opportunity and expectations. And with that, I close. Thank you. I would like to thank all the uh, panelists for keeping uh, to their time limits. I know everyone has a lot of information to share, uh, and they were diligent uh, in keeping to the time constraints. At this point, we have uh, a couple minutes for any questions uh, that you as the audience and participants might have. So please make your way to the microphone. It's becoming a regular habit 
but go ahead. And a question. Question. Not a comment. Question. Quick question. Um, to be honest, this is a great question. I was not at Meyer, at UMBC or Meyerhoff when that happened, and to be honest with you, I don't know very much of the detail. I do know that the court case was at College Park with the Banneker Scholars Program. Um, I don't know very much else. We had the decision of going forward and including everyone or closing the door and stopping it. Um, and the leadership thought this is a great opportunity to bring others into the arena to make them aware of the issues of underrepresentation. And again, we really do try and work with our non-minority students in understanding that. And we have very frank conversations about race that in the summer when they come back from NIH, did you see very many African Americans working in those labs at NIH? And who did you see? And, and, let's, and we talk about the issues. Um, the professor that teaches the Africana Studies course um, is really quite hands-on, and um, they have very candid discussions about race and our nation's history with race. Um, and so we see a very positive aspect that non-minorities have been involved in, and leave knowing the issues. And even our alumni call back, and they will say, you know, I'm, I'm at graduate school. Um, when people come to interview, I, I pull the black students aside and say, you know, there are not many of you here. You may not see, but this is a good place for you. I know people. I work very closely. My tutor for biochemistry was black. I mean, they, they really give people an, an opportunity um, to know that they've had a very different experience. And one of our sort of program mantras is changing minds in regards that many of our high-achieving white students have not seen high-achieving black students. And to be tutored and to roommate with people um, who you look at and are sort of breaking the curve, and you're used to breaking the curve, but it's people who don't look like you, it changes a lot of minds. So, yeah.
can I can I respond? Go ahead, quickly. Okay, uh, it's not my program, but I have a perspective that I think is relevant. I am not so sure about such a conservative application um, of interpretation to the Supreme Court ruling. Um, in fact, But one thing that was reinforced repeatedly throughout your presentation is that your program is not a scholarship program only, that there are several other kinds of components. And I think that when you, and I know for sure that when you arm yourself with the data that very clearly illustrate the stark inequities, race-based inequities, that that does in fact provide an institution with the ammunition should they so choose to go in that, inform in that, in that, in that direction uh, with the information? Yes, I agree. But I would argue that we probably ought to get fired up and, dare I say, pissed off enough to um, encourage the institutional stakeholders to go in that direction when we have such problematic evidence. Let's have these next three questions really quick. Okay, this question is for Jason and Dennis. So in your presentation, you were able to categorize low opportunity and high opportunity areas. So what are the factors that you could use to create high opportunity areas? Because, Dennis, you stated um, near the end of your presentation that if you are a rational person, you would just go out to this suburb where there are all these opportunities. But we know that white flight happens. You know, So as you have an increase in black people moving into these high opportunity areas, how do you preempt the movement of this, how do you preempt this high opportunity area going to a moderate or low opportunity area? I can uh, try to respond to that. You know, we're not talking just about mobility, but also about bringing resources back into existing communities that are distressed. So that's one part of the answer there. Um, you know, the, I guess, when we're looking at the issue of white flight and suburban communities, you know, it's come up with a lot of the projects we've worked on. It came up with the housing lawsuit in Baltimore just because um, the opponents on the other side said you can't build subsidized housing white communities like this. People will just leave. The, the community will just decline. You know, a lot of the social science research does contradict that. And it depends on how deliberate you are in terms of citing affordable housing in particular. Uh, you know, generally, you know, especially for high, very high income communities, they found that the introduction of affordable housing and the introduction of new residents really did not upset the nature of the community as long as it wasn't an overwhelming number of people moving in very quickly. Um, on the other side of that too, I know in case of uh, Thompson in Baltimore, they've been doing some focus groups uh, with some of the suburban neighborhoods in the Baltimore region, kind of posing that question, you know, you're going to have new people moving into your community, um, you know, what informs your opinions of people moving in, what could help you want to interact with those new residents more, um, and one theme that's come out of some of those focus groups is that new residents moving in, especially if they connect with a lot of the faith-based institutions in the neighborhood, um, 
people seem to accept them, embrace them, and bring them into the community quicker. Um, which I think, you know, I think we have to not only think about you know, how we're building affordable housing in some of these communities, but also you know, what are we doing about creating social networks and building relationships when people move in. Uh, so it's a complex issue, and, and we can talk about it more. I mean, there's a whole empirical side of it, too. There's been lots of social science research on you know, the dynamics of white flight, you know, thresholds in which people will leave neighborhoods. You know, and one thing to consider um, is the concentration of poverty, which often really pushes people out of neighborhoods as well. George Galster's work out of Detroit um, really supports this, especially when you get above around 20% you know, poverty rate in a neighborhood, the neighborhood just starts to decline. So we do have to think about thresholds like that. Um, you know, people will start to be pushed away from the neighborhood at that point. They will leave if they can because they feel like the neighborhood's deteriorating. I think if I were going Brother to Dennis. add anything. Dennis, um, I'm, I'm going to limit the responses just to one panelist in the interest of time. Okay. All, All right. right. Okay, that's good. Next, qu next question. Um, yeah, this is for Sean Harper. Um, thanks for helping us understand how to shift that paradigm. I was wondering if you could just give us a sample of some of the coping mechanisms that actually did help these guys get through. Sure. I was very intentional with not disclosing a lot of findings from the study because I literally just finished data collection on the 42 campuses about a month ago. So I'm a little bit hesitant without having done the formal official analysis. Um, to disclose those at, at this time. And I'm not just offering that as a cop-out, but I just want to be fair to the data and do a, a full analytical treatment. But what I will say instead, though, is that I can't wait now to revisit my data to look at the guys from Detroit who are in my project who I know for sure came from some of those low opportunity areas to figure out how in the world they did that. Thank you. I'd like to thank the panel one more time. You certainly did stimulate our thinking, and thanks for the Kerwin Institute for the whole day. Um, I'm a faculty member here at Ohio State University, and part of my question has to do with how do insiders like me fight to not have policies established that are going to have unintended consequences for the group that we're talking about today, such as black males? Mr. Bell, you talked about the percentage of your students who get into Ohio State University. And over the last few years, this particular university has raised the bar for admission in terms of ACT, SAT scores. And we're doing the same kind of thing with PhD admissions with the GRE scores. And traditionally, African-American males don't do well on those kinds of tests, ACT. And I'm, I know I'm super generalizing here. But I want to be sure that there are some things that insiders like me can do not to have an institution set up hurdles that cannot be passed by people like African-American males that we care about. So, so it's kind of an admissions to college question and what we do with the preparedness in high schools, Mr. Bell, to get into college. Once they get into college, making sure they get the degree or like you're trying to do with the program at UM. Um, BC to get out of graduate school and then go into the medical college or go into, you know, PhD study. So my question is really, is there anything that you all can think about that 
insiders need to be doing to make sure that the rules that are set up for admissions policy decisions don't negatively impact African-American males coming in? Something that we do at, uh, in Westville. Um, one of the things that we did uh, is, if you know anything about uh, Ohio and high school, I, I talked a little bit about the Ohio graduation test. And here's the, here's the thinking that, that kids have. On the Ohio graduation test that kids have to take in order to pass to get a diploma in the state of Ohio, the test is geared toward you answering as many questions as you can. So we teach as when they're ninth and 10th graders to answer all of the questions. Whether you know them or not, answer the questions because you get credit for the questions that you answer. Now, if you follow that, when they take the SAT and the ACT, you are punished for incorrect answers. So here's what we, here's where, if you don't, if you don't communicate that, here's what happens. As a ninth and 10th grader, they're thinking, I got to answer everything. And somewhere along the line, no one ever tells them that when they take the SAT or the ACT or any standardized testing tests, that if they answer them all and they're incorrect, that it hurts them. And no one ever tells them that. Then what happens is their scores are lower. So what we're trying to do is it's all about education on the inside to make sure they understand the different testing techniques. Because if they don't get the diploma or they don't get past the Ohio graduation test, they can't get to the next test which then it's not about getting the, it's not about the, um, the quality of, or the quantity of answers, it's about the quality. So part of that is about that educational process. The other thing that we have at Westerville, uh, at our school, it's exclusive. We have international baccalaureate, we have AP, we have all of those kinds of things. But having students be able to uh, understand the difference between taking an advanced placement course and taking something like an international baccalaureate course where an AP course where you are, you're trying to get an answer and in an international baccalaureate course where it's not about getting the answers, about how you got the answer, and they're testing you on what you don't know or what you already know. And when you look at an AP test, they're just testing you on they want you to get the answers. And so we're trying to get our kids to get past just getting answers but to understand how, how, they, how they're learning and how they learn. And, and I really think that, you know, when, when I looked at, and I really did some, um, some research, and, and, and I could have brought some of that, just looking at our kids that have taken the ACT and taken those standardized testing, they did not know that. Those kids, when they were taking the test, hurried up at the end to answer as many as they possibly could, regardless if they knew the answer or not. Therefore, their scores were lower. And then those are the same students that don't have an opportunity to take the test again. So what happens then is their scores then become lower and then their opportunities are less. So I think a lot of, if I understand your question, for me being a part of the institution is to try to make sure that I educate our students on what they need to do in order to be successful and part of that is understanding the game. Everybody else has understood it for a long time. So our students need to understand how to play the game and how to be able to, to do that. And that has to be, you know, that has to be educated, has to be communicated to them. So that's just something, just a, just a, uh, an a small example of something that we've done at our place. Yeah, question. Good evening. I happen to be staff at Ohio State University in the, let's call it a writing center literacy capacity. And we've done summer writing camps for our students. In recruiting students for the camp, I did an actual high school hop, and I visited four of our urban inner city schools. And when I left the schools, and it was about a maybe two-hour process, they're all in the same vicinity, and I live in the hood, so it was easy to get to them, I was surprised about the energy, the vibe, 
the dress, the loudness, the overall, what the high schools are looking like now, which is, I think, a little bit different from when I went there. I'm wondering in the classroom, I don't care who really answers this, in the classroom, do you think the, 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 the classroom instruction needs to be packaged differently now for our students to get to assure higher achievement, to, to make the learning process a, a more effective process. Thank you. Anyone of our panelists want to take a stab at that? Everybody's looking at me, so I guess I better answer that. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily know if it has to be packaged any differently. I think it has to be packaged more efficiently. I, I'll give you an example. When I came to, to Westerville, our school was uh, in uh, school improvement. Uh, had we not been able to perform the first year I was there, we would have uh, um, had uh, some state issues and all of that. So one of the things that I tried to do was to um, role model and show our students, um, uh, when you talk about different packaging, show them people who are successful and give them role models and, and people that they could see that were successful. And one of them is sitting in the room of a vet who came in and spoke and did a great job for our, our students. Um, and I think that, that one of the that that uh, in the in the schools that are successful, and we were able to turn around to the point where uh, I just give you an example. My my the year before I came, our students scored at uh, I think it was 73 in math, and then after my first year, it was 90 93 percent uh, in math. Uh, in in reading, it was 63 percent, and after the first year, it was 92 percent. And part of the difference in the packaging was the difference in the focus of our staff. Uh, we had clear targets, and I think what happens a lot of times is people don't understand what they're trying to shoot for. The target moves. Um, people don't, you know, you, you, you think that uh, everybody's going to learn the same way, which is what I mentioned, um, and it doesn't work that way. And we don't have improvement like we had if we didn't put together some things that were different. And I think the, the other part of it is uh, with high school staff, and I had, I've had to deal with this in two high schools, everybody thinks it's just a content. I call it random acts of isolation. People go into their own rooms and close the door, and they do really good things, but they don't want anybody else to know about it. And what happens is that you can no longer do that. What happens in reading, if a, if a student can't read and they can't do math and they can't do science and they can't do some of the other areas, and so everybody has to take ownership in the fact that if, if the students can't do what they need to do, it's everybody's problem, and it's a community problem. And had those kids not performed, some of those teachers wouldn't have jobs. And so what, hap what we've been able to do then is to get, every, I, you know, really common sense, convince them that these are your stakeholders, you better take care of them. And so that is kind of how we've done it at Westerfield to kind of change uh, the focus of, of presentation. But I had a good staff to start with. It was just a matter of, of bringing some of that out and, and refocusing. And I think that your schools that are successful have a, have, a, have a focus that's common and it's not isolated. And I think that's the biggest difference. Thank you. At this time, I would like to call uh, Mr. Prince Williams uh, forward. And as he makes his, who, who will introduce um, our uh, the Honorable uh, Judge Brown, uh, who will give closing remarks. And as he makes his way up here, would you all please, I invite the panelists to remain uh, on the stage, but would you all please join me in thanking them uh, for an engaging, hopeful fourth panel. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Prince Williams. I'm a fourth-year student here at the uh, College of Business, a marketing major. I'm also the uh, president of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, Delta Omicron chapter here at Ohio State University. And as he said, I'm here to introduce Judge Yvette McGee-Brown. 
A champion for children and families, Yvette McGee Brown has had a distinguished career focused on improving the lives of young people. As the president of the Center for Child and Family Advocacy at the Children's Hospital, she leads an effort that serves as a national model created to break the cycle of child abuse and family violence. A, collabor a collaboration between the Children's Hospital and the Columbus Coalition Against Family Violence, the Children's Together in One Building, Police, I'm sorry, which brings together in one building, Police, excuse me, I'm sorry, I lost my spot, Police, Prosecutors, Child Welfare Social Workers, Prevention Specialists, Domestic Violence Advocates, and Children's Hospital Medical Therapeutic Staff. The center provides assessment, treatment, prevention training, and education and advocacy. Prior to her role as president of the Center for Child and Family Advocacy, she served as judge in the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas, Division of Domestic Relations and Juvenile Court from 1993 to 2002. She was the first African-American and the second woman to be elected to this court. Judge McGee Brown is a native of Columbus, Ohio, and a graduate of Columbus Public Schools. She received her undergraduate degree in journalism and public relations from the Ohio University, her Juris Doctorate from the Ohio State University, College of Law, and her Honorary Doctorate Laws degree from Ohio Dominican University, and an Honorary Doctor of Law degree from Mount Carmel College of Nursing. So with great honor, I bring to you Judge Yvette McGee-Brown. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you here this afternoon. I'm actually very pleased to be the only African-American woman, I think, on, on the program as I looked at everybody's bio. So um, I'm glad to be up here with my friend Keith Bell and many of my friends in the audience. And I'm going to be brief, so don't worry. We will get you out of here on time. I really appreciated the young sister's last comment about the schools because I assume the reason Professor Powell asked me to speak to you is to really focus perhaps at the beginning because we can talk about systems. And I think there are some accountability for systems, whether it's education, health, uh, justice systems, but there's some accountability about us. And what I want to leave you with here today is that as we continue to hold systems accountable, I would like to encourage you to hold each other accountable and the other people in your life. I think that when you walk into any high school and you see our children, male and female, emulating a stereotype that is not reflective of who we are, we have a problem. And too many of us, even those of us that live in the suburbs, spend so much time working and socializing that we're not correcting our own children. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen parents pull up, drop their boys off at school, and as the car drives away, the pants go down, the belt goes off, and the shirt comes out. And I think the standard that we start to hold our children accountable to make sure they're in a framework to achieve starts with us as parents. So that means challenging our children to take the academically rigorous courses and not accepting that they don't want to be the only one in the class or it's too hard and valuing more from our children than just whether they can bounce or throw a ball. I have seen parents sit in the stands cheering on their child because they're a great basketball or football player and they have a 1.7 and aren't going to get into anybody's college. So the accountability starts with us, first in our homes, first in what we role model for our African-American males. And I want to say this too, I want to say this to our sisters who are here and to our males, is this, many of us have had to raise children by ourselves. Themselves. But if we do that, the message has to be that black men are still important in our lives. And we need to, if we can't connect them with their own father, we need to connect them with somebody 
who models what a strong African-American male is. For too long, I think, we have sent the message that we can do it by ourselves, we're strong enough to accomplish it, and we don't need that other person, and that is killing our young people. Our young people are casual about sex. They are casual about whether they have children and with whom they have children, and the only people that have the power to change that is us. Ladies and gentlemen, when 70% of our children are born to a single parent and we sit idly by and don't say anything, we are killing our future. And believe it or not, the system's not going to reform until we start giving them young people who are ready to compete. And that means giving them a mother and a father who set standards in their homes, not just by telling them what to do, but by showing them in the way that they live how they are supposed to behave and what the expectation is of them. In addition, we've got to start holding our leaders accountable because I love when we start talking about urban districts, and at least in Ohio, when we talk about urban school districts, that is us, y'all. The people running those districts are us. There's no mythical man there. And so if our schools aren't performing, then we need to be holding each other accountable and speaking out about that. The thing that excites me about what Professor Kerwin and the staff have done here with this program is I think we can't shine too bright a light because the prison system has become the new employment system for our men. It is sad. It is sad to watch young brothers who are going to prison just this morning, um, just this morning, one of my um, former staff, my former secretary called me because her son was involved in what was on the news this morning where there was a home invasion and the police came in and killed one of the, the um alleged home invaders and uh, arrested the other young man who's now sitting in jail charged with aggravated murder because of the felony murder rule. And um, this kid is saying that, you know, all my friend told me is that he needed to, this guy owed him some money and we were going to go get it. And before, you know, they knew it, they're all charging into the house. Who our kids hang around with, who they spend time with, we need to know that. The justice system is not playing, and they are happy to take our children from us if we are not prepared to parent them. So what I would like to leave you with is this. I know having heard everything you've heard today, it may seem overwhelming that we can change the system. I believe we can. I'm a product of the system. Keith Bell's a product of the system. Many of you sitting in this room are a product of the system. There is no um, substitute, though, for hard work for being willing to work when everybody else wants to be out in the streets, being willing to study when your eyes can hardly stand open, being willing to challenge yourself even when it's not the cool thing to do. So I would ask each and every one of you that you take the information you heard today and if you don't have young African-American men in your life as your children, then you look for somebody else's child and be willing to say stop. Stop the madness. Stop trying to emulate what you see on TV that is propagated by big corporations trying to make money and is not reflective of who we are as a people. Stop walking around looking like you're about to commit a felony every minute. And I say that I have a 20-year-old daughter who has an attraction to uh, young men most likely to commit a felony. You know that bad boy. Look, <laughs> she's a sophomore in college, and she just seems to, to like that 50-cent look, as she says it. But I keep saying to her and her friends, I said, you know, if you ladies didn't respond to it, they'd quit dressing like that because they're doing it because you think it's cute and sexy. So we need to say not only to our young men but to our young women what is appropriate behavior. Quit allowing our children to listen to music that denigrates not only themselves but thank you.
but our experience as a people. Again, our kids just don't know. They don't get that people are making millions off of them while they're sitting around playing trash in their cars and in their houses. And as parents, we've got to take moral authority back. I can't tell you the number of times parents have called me and said, what can I do because my son won't stop playing X in my house or my son won't stop this in his car? Well, you know what I tell them. Um, so, I mean, we have to, kids don't have a right to cars. They don't have a right to stereos. They don't even have a right. Now that I have a 20-year-old, I tell you, you don't have a right to live in my house anymore. I can put you out. So we, <laughs> we have to be very clear about what our standards are. So stop allowing them to have immoral behavior and standing by and not doing anything about it. Please, please, please talk to your children about sex is not casual. I don't care what they see on MTV, real life, whatever. Talk to your children Talk to them early because the messages they're getting out in the community are awful about what it means to hook up with somebody and how casual they are with their bodies. I was in Florida a couple months ago, and on a bus sign, on a bus, the side of a bus, as it turned the corner, was a sign that said, one in 65 Floridians is HIV infected. One in 65. So if you have a child going to school in Florida, thinking about going to school in Florida, going to visit in Florida, please, please make sure they understand they need to protect themselves. And then for just the parents and that those of you who serve as parents, I would say this. If you can do nothing else to young people, please encourage excellence. I think the reason that I was able to go to college, to law school, and to become a judge, and to do well here at Ohio State's Moritz College of Law, is because I had a grandmother who always told me that I was as good as anybody else, and I could achieve whatever I wanted if I was willing to work hard enough to do it. And she put that into me every day from as long as I can remember hearing her voice. She never accepted anything less than excellent. And so if you want this to change, we've got to change. No more excuses, no more listening, excuse me if there's anybody here from 107, no more listening to that trash from 107.5, no more allowing that kind of denigrating negative imaging, whether it's TV, radio, movies, whatever, into your house. And if you tell me you can't control it, I will tell you this, because I've raised three children, got one left in the house. You can control what's on your TV because kids ain't smart. I told my daughter not to watch BET. I'd come home, soon I turned the TV on, it's right on BET because they ain't smart enough to change it before you walk in the house to show that they haven't been watching it. You can set the standards. Don't ever give up moral authority. Don't ever give the system, the education system, the justice system, responsibility for caring for your children. It starts with us, and then this will follow. God bless you, and thank you.